Welcome to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on Monday, December 11th. I'm going to be joined by Tennis Now editor Richard Pagliaro and Tennis Now key contributor Eric Goodris, and we are here to break down and talk about the 2023 tennis season. It's in the books. It was amazing. So much happened. We're not going to get to it all, of course, today, but we're going to do our best. We're going to give it the old college try. And of course, the first name that comes to our minds when we talk about 2023 in tennis is Novak Djokovic, 36 years old. He won three of the four Grand Slams. He now sits atop the men's singles Grand Slam titles list with 24. We're going to talk about Djokovic's year. We're going to look ahead to what he might be able to achieve in 2024, talk about his key rivals. We'll also talk about the women's side, Iga Sviatek. She becomes the WTA Player of the Year for the second consecutive year. She's a four-time Grand Slam champion. She won her fourth major at Roland Garros this year. We'll talk about Iga. We'll talk about her key rivals in 2023 and who might be able to challenge her at the top of the rankings in 2024. We'll also do a deep dive into some WTA politics, look for the future of the sport, and in general, just look ahead to tennis in 2024. It's an exciting interview. Why don't we get to it right now? Eric and Richard, great to speak with you guys. Happy holidays. Let's talk a little tennis 2023, shall we? Yeah, it's great to speak to you guys and a uh, great way to end the year. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's good to, good for us to reconvene. I think it's been so, since before the U.S. Open. So we've got a few things to catch up with, and we want to do a general review of the season. Looking back on, God, I mean, it's going to be too much. We're not going to get to it all today, obviously. But, I mean, let's let's just start with, with Eric, who I haven't been able to speak to in quite some time. Nice to hear your voice, by the way. Um you know what? What's something that sticks in your mind? Like, what is what is something that really hits home for you when you talk about or think about the year that we just witnessed in the in the across the the long journey of the tennis calendar, Eric? Uh, for sure, it, it it does definitely feel it's been a long year. I mean, in, I mean, for me specifically, of course, Novak Djokovic. Uh, I, as I said, I guess around this time last year, I thought that he would come into twenty twenty three with a vengeance. And wanting to prove something after everything that has happened had happened to him over the last couple of years, and that was certainly the case, and he certainly proved that. Um, of course, Carlos Alcaraz uh, again, just sort of continuing his rapid ascent um, and proving that he he's definitely here to stay. Um, I guess towards the end of the season, of course, Yannick Sinner taking that next step in his career and suddenly becoming uh, looking like a true, a true contender next year for a major. And then for the women, just again, just the, the variety and the depth in the field. Um, certainly uh, it was week in, week out. It was great to never quite know who was going to win so much variety and so much competition um, that it's definitely going to make it a very intriguing 2024 season for, for the women. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for starting us off, Eric. And I think you hit on some pretty cool things. Of course, we all got to think about Novak Djokovic. It, it, he's the first thing that comes to mind for me. 
I mean, just ridiculous that he's been able to, what he's been able to do. I mean, that he, the fact that he's at 24 majors right now, I mean, it's just kind of insane. You can't not mention that first. Of course, we watched uh, Novak and John Wertheim on uh, 60 Minutes last night. Interesting interview. Um, but, Richard, I turn it to you. What are some of the things that stick out for you this year? And before I do turn it to you, I want to point out that for me personally, Looking at the rankings, I'm kind of excited to see that uh, kind of like a, a four players have emerged on the men's side. We've got, as Eric mentioned, Yannick Sinner, Carlos Alcaraz, Novak Djokovic, and Daniil Medvedev. That is a solid top four. And you look at the women's side where Iga gave, you know, a slight bit of ground back to her competitors, Arena Sabalenka winning her first major. And now you see a top four on the women's side of Iga Sviantec, Arena Sabalenka, Coco Gauff, Elena Rybakina. Pretty solid top fours across the board. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic top fours. And I guess for the men, I would kind of echo what Eric said on, on It's the Year of Novak. And even the one that he lost to Alcaraz was, to me, maybe the, my favorite final in Wimbledon. It was a great, great match. And also the fact, to me, one of the most underrated records of his is, I think that was his fourth year with three slams in, a, in one year, which is just incredible. I mean, you know, we always talk about, well, he didn't win the slam, he didn't win the goldens, but to do that, I mean, just incredible that he's done it so many times and i also love the exchanges with novak and the audience that we saw in turin when he was doing the conducting against the italian fans at the u.s open against shelton when he did the hang-up which was so i mean it was just epic. striking it was epic epic great word yeah so i love that with him and uh the exchange with the fans and uh, Sinner, absolutely, for me, Sinner, to see him step up and, uh, you know, take Italy to the, to the Davis Cup for the first time since 76. Great, great Italian team that he bounced back from, that he beat Djokovic, then he got pounded, then he bounced back. I mean, it shows the kind of resilience he has. Also, for the Americans, men and women, I would say, you know, you saw Coco break through, JPEG, great year, but also someone like Tommy Paul, you know, Shelton, Corda turning it up at the end. And uh, I think it's just a really encouraging sign for the, uh, you know, for Americans. And also I was happy to see, uh, I've always been a big Layla Fernandez fan, to see her take uh, what she did with Kennedy and the, and the emotion they had and to win the Billie Jean King Cup the way they did. And she played with so much heart, so much spirit, as we've seen for all these years. Nice to see her coming back. And the last thing I want to say is just... Uh, a big buzz for me is to see on the women's side, people always talk about, oh, rivalries. I like seeing the breakthroughs. So to see Vondrasova, to see Coco, to see Sabalenka, and Vondrasova is maybe not someone that was picked to maybe win a major someday, but certainly Coco and Sabalenka, there's a lot of pressure on them. To see them rise up, that was really, really exciting. And, some, and to see them face off at the Open, to see Coco come back, that was one of my favorite moments. And the fact that women every year were seeing a maiden champion, whether it was, you know, Radicano a couple of years ago, uh, the year Ostapenko came through, on and on, uh, uh, Barbara Krachikova, all these people, every year, Kennan, every year we're seeing a fresh face come through, and I'd like to see that continue, but in 2024, we also have Osaka coming back, Kerber coming back, we saw Svitolina make a great comeback, you want to see Ans Jabor break through and win a maiden major, so there's so many great, exciting moments for the women ahead, despite, you know, on the business side and the, and the mess that was Cancun and the way it, politically, it just seems to be a mess right now, the tennis, the players are so exciting i'm so pumped up about it yeah I, you hit on a lot right there and it's tough to, to know which direction we should take this conversation i'll just pick something 
and I'll I'll move it to Player of the Year because we got the WTA's Player of the Year announcement today. It's Iga Sviantek from the Tour, and I guess um, I'd like to know if you guys agree with that. Starting with Eric, who do you have as as your Player of the Year, both on the women's and the men's side, and why? Uh, I, I I go with Iga for Player of the Year again, just. Uh, the, the level of consistency and again how she was able to sort of be number one for so long and handle that handle that pressure and be be the player to beat essentially on the women's tour and of course on the men's side has to be Novak Djokovic because of his stellar season just another incredible uh, a stellar season within a career stellar season so that's why yeah. no brainers right I mean a lot of good competition on both sides, but yeah, you got to give it to Iga. And in my mind, it's because she was able to take the number one ranking back at the end of the season, finish it with a crowning maiden title at the WTA Finals. Uh, you know, albeit a, a very strange slash bizarre tournament in Cancun, but one that she ultimately dominated and is now standing again at the top of the rankings, heading into. 2024 68 and 11 on the season with six titles talk about consistency really not much of a level drop if any from 2022 which was so dominant and um novak i mean absolutely insane 56 and 7 seven titles could have won all four majors only it was only alcaraz that stood in between him so i mean 36 years old the way he's performing and the way he's performing against these young rising stars of the game who we thought might be ready to take over but not quite right richard Absolutely, and it's a no-brainer, as you said. You got to go with Novak there. It almost ran the table in terms of the slams, and also I give him so much credit at the end of the year where he could have, you know, just said, "Let me, let me go total reha- uh, rest and training mode." And he, no, I want to win the cup again for Serbia. You know, to do that Amazing. where he doesn't need to do that, and I mean they. they- win but he gave a great effort and he really put it all out there and also the interview like you said at the top with John Wertheim on 60 Minutes last night to wrap a bow around it he's a guy that fascinates me because of a player of that stature he really lets you in I mean he's very revealing we talked about it before the anecdotes about Federer about Nate Dow and also when Wertheim said to him you know I think your greatest gift is the mental strength and he said I gotta correct you that's not a gift that's something I really really worked hard. I thought that was just fascinating the whole sort of peeling back the curve you know, when he when he's at the U.S. Open, he's watching the big screen on changeovers to see if the guy's winded or breathing hard or nerve. Just the details, the subtleties, the attention to detail this guy brings, it's really, really remarkable. And it's he articulates it so well that he kind of brings you in to the bubble, and, and that was fascinating for me. And just to back up what you guys said about Iga, had Sabalenka finished year, uh, year at number one, maybe you go with her, but Iga, six titles... The way she did it at the end, you know, losing to Coco in the summer, coming back, pounding again. And also, if you just look statistically, she's one of the top in terms of holding serve. She's right up there with um, Sabalenka, Rabak, and I think Garcia was the other one. And she's one of the best or the best at breaking serve. So you have those two categories where you're the best. You're going to win a lot of tournaments. And she did exactly that. She's a well-deserved player of the year. Yeah, and her coach is the coach of the year also. Go figure, right? A uh, question about Novak and his legacy. 2023 was a really big year for him in terms of numbers. He hit 24 major titles, tied with Margaret Court now. I think a lot of people would like to see him pass that record now that he's been he's well beyond uh, Nadal's 22 and Federer's 20 major titles. 400 weeks at number one. A record eighth season as the ATP's year-end number one. 
first man to win 40 Masters titles. I mean, I could go on if you want me to. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. And, and I wonder, we'll start with you, Richard. Um, did, was this a legacy changer this season for him? Is, is the GOAT question even, even a question anymore? It's definitely not a question anymore, and I think it just solidified what what most people knew if you've been watching him. Also, to do it on all surfaces, to do it, as you said, at 36 against, you're going against 20, you're giving up 15, 16 years to some of these guys who are prime athletes, to be able to do it, and to do it in the way he did it. I mean, his serve is so accurate, he was backing it up so well, and even if you go back to Australia when he had to play a little bit quicker, shorten the points up because he wasn't feeling it physically, he's able to adapt to no matter what anybody threw at him. And like you said, the one loss in Wimbledon was a one hell of a match. He put it all out there, could have gone either way. So, yeah, he, he's it just blows your mind. Uh, you, every time you think you've seen it, he takes it up another level. So that's why 2024 is going to be so great, especially now with Rafa coming back too. Yes, Raphael. And Eric, let me put that question to you about Novak. Was, how did you see his legacy change maybe for, after winning three more slams and, and moving to the top of the men's singles Grand Slam titles list? Well, definitely his like, legacy has changed. I think, as, as Richard said, it's like the argument's over in terms of who is uh, the GOAT. I think it'll be interesting to see next year kind of how he approaches it, uh, especially with the Olympics. And um, yep. in some ways, 2024, maybe that might be a little less, I don't want to say incentive, but less pressure in some ways because he's achieved so much now that uh, let's say he let's say he wins two majors, which for anybody is an amazing feat in one year. I mean, it's, that would certainly be an incredible accomplishment. So I just feel like for him, it's, I think, you know, he's chasing other records as well aside from the majors. He wants to win. He wants to pass Jimmy Connors, um, all time titles one. Yes. So that's another, that's another record that he's chasing outside of the majors. So that's probably going to be maybe his motivation in, in 2024 is that specific record yep. to go for. Yes, well said, Eric. And, and, and along that, along those same lines, um, motivation for Novak, you look no further than his new rivals, Carlos Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner. I want to ask you, Eric, what do you? Th- how high are you on both of these players? And are you as high on Alcaraz as maybe you might have been, hypothetically, after Wimbledon? What has Yannick Sinner done in the last two months of the season, winning 20 of 22, dominating his... Uh, you know, toughest competition. I think he, he won a lot of matches against the top three. In fact, I'll, I have a little stat on that that I want to preface your question with. Um, he won eight of 11 matches against the top three this season. He started his career 0-8 against the top three. So what kind of strides has Sinner made? How do you see Alcaraz and Sinner shaping up in 2024 and beyond? Do you think there's even room for other dominant players? Like, you know, we talk about our young Americans coming up. I just wonder how you see it big picture. Well, I think I think one thing if we start talking about uh, center is the addition of Darren Cahill to his team, and I think it's I think it's interesting where we talk about these coaches a lot for both the men and the women and and what they bring. And it was clear that Darren Cahill unlocked something in center Indeed. towards the second half of the season. I mean, there was something there similar to what Brad Gibbert did for Coco Goff. I mean, it was basically, it, it was sort of like it unlocked something there. And again, we see coaches come with players and they, 
assists, but those were to me the, um, those were two most dramatic shifts, like the second half of the season, right? Yes, yes. So go, going back to center, I think there's definitely he's now in like in a different place than he was this time last year. Where now it's like he's not just in the mix for the top ten. Now he's definitely in the mix for a major. So that's where he is. As far as Alcaraz goes, I think Alcaraz is, is again. Is there's still so much level that he can achieve that it's just him getting to that next level, which is crazy to think about at the level that he's already at. Yeah. But it's like that Wimbledon final where he could have lost that final, but he kind of course corrected and figured that match out as he was playing it, which was so impressive to watch. So I think for both of them, it's just, now that they've reached this this kind of peak at this point in their careers, what how do they kind of go to the, the even the next level next year? Yeah, that's great stuff. And and Richard, uh, let's keep this subject going. Alcaraz and Sinner, where where are they headed? How thoroughly do you think they could dominate in an in an era of tennis that will no longer include Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, which we could be looking at in two three years maybe? I mean. How good are these guys, and how much room is is there going to be for other players? Like, for instance, if you look at now, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Holger Runa, these type of guys. And then as we look further down the road, you know, as we, and we're going to talk about this later, the American men's tennis breakthrough. We're still waiting on that, that slam that we haven't had since Andy Roddick at the U.S. Open in 2003. Like, is there room for a Taylor Fritz, a Tommy Paul, a Francis Tiafo, a Ben Shelton to win majors? Or are we going to be talking about an Alcaraz Sinner era coming up in the next couple of years? I think we will be talking about Alcaraz Sinner era, but, you know, also... I love Alcaraz. To me, Alcaraz is the most gifted, just overall talent and feel for the ball, the best I've ever seen since Federer. I mean, just what he can do with the ball is incredible. Like Eric said, his ta- he has not even, he's not near the ceiling of what he can achieve. He can be even better. I worry about him physically. He's not as big as those other guys, and, you know, he plays sort of an acrobatic style at times, which is great. He's the most crowd-pleasing player, but I worry about the injury factor and yeah i do think that we will enter if they stay healthy yes i do think we will see uh alcaraz sinner era but i i don't discount it's a pass zverev is a gold medal champion he beat sinner i mean he beat him at the open i don't discount those guys at all rublev i don't discount him either even though people say he can't get over the quarterfinal hump he can't beat those guys the reason he can't beat Djokovic. Alcaraz, those guys, he doesn't have as many shots as those guys. That's why he can't beat them. But it's not to say that he can't develop his game or, or that he can't beat them playing his game. That he, he's just really good. I mean, I'm not saying he's going to be a dominant player, but I don't think you discount Zverev, Rublev, Sitsipas, or a guy like Shelton coming up, or certainly not Rune, even though he struggled second half of the year. Now he's got Becker. I wouldn't discount those guys at all. I think they still have a. They all have a claim to maybe winning a major someday, but for me, it's definitely Alcaraz and Sinner. If they're healthy, it's going to be those two guys. I think you know at the top. Yeah, they've shown they've shown an incredible capacity for um, growth and talent. So yeah, it's there. We're going to be watching them for a while. It'll be I don't and very... Sinner, like Eric, across the board. I mean, not only people talk a lot about the servant curious on tennis channel. He was really good during the ATP finals, explaining how that step up, the change in the serve, how that really helped. And I thought curious 
articulated that really well. But I think across the board, his game, when I saw him as a young guy, he hit the ball beautifully, but he played cross-court like every single point. Now you see him, especially the Djokovic win, the Alcoran, he can take it down the line so well now. And when you hit as big as he does and when you take it as early as he does, that's a huge, huge weapon to have down the line because the guy has to protect the cross-court shot. That's the percentage shot. And I feel like that really opened everything else up for him in terms of moving forward, finishing at net, stuff like that. Yep, yep. And he's obviously forced indoors too. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the place where he's yep. really comfortable. Watch out for him on the indoor courts. But, Eric, I switch, uh, switch topics a little bit, move it over to you and ask you – Best Grand Slam final of the season, men's or women's? Which one stands out more than any other of the eight Grand Slam singles finals we saw this year? Uh, well, I'll pivot towards uh, the women, and I'll say the uh, the Roland Garros French Open final between uh, Schwantek and Mohova. I thought that was just uh, captivating, yeah. um, especially since Mohova was uh, so close. And it had such a dramatic run to the the final there. So, uh, but again, again, speaking towards Iga's strength, especially her mental strength, and just hanging in there um, towards the end. So, um, I would definitely pick that. And then for the men, of course, it have to be Djokovic and Alcaraz at the Wimbledon final mm-hmm. for sure. Um, Iga down, I think down a break. Richard probably will know this. He's he's our resident statistic man, I think, because we don't have Steve Flink on this podcast. But um, I think she was down a break twice in that final set, or at least once. Yeah, uh-huh. and came back really, really strong. And also, just to pick up on what Eric said about the emotion, I remember after, immediately after the trophy ceremony when they gave Muhova the runner-up trophy and the crowd gave her the standing O, yeah. and you just saw the tears. I mean, I got really emotional watching that because you saw that the crowd, and they're a tough crowd. They can be a very tough crowd there, that they respected all she's been through in her with the injuries and not being able to play, how much it meant. And even though, you know, Ego well-deserved winner, I mean, I felt like she was a winner, too the way the way the fans responded to her yeah that was drama all the way through it on the women's side from the semifinal Mohova taking out Sabalenka saving a match point and then uh Iga yeah Iga becomes the youngest player to win a consecutive RG title since Celis in 92 she's so amazing on the clay now a three-time slam, slam, uh, champion at Paris it's just uh always pretty amazing to see someone be that good on that specific surface in that specific place someone who idolizes Rafa Nadal the connection there so a good one by the way my pick was Sabalenka over Rybakina, the first slam of the year. I just thought get, seeing Arena get over the hump was amazing. She had a had to come back from a set down. You know, she's basically known as uh, an underachiever at the slams at that point in her career. And to see her get over the hump and to finish off Rybakina with a, like a ten minute game to close out that match on her fourth championship point was just a really great moment for someone who's just. You know, just an, just a determined, hardworking player who's just always trying to improve herself through a lot of hardship on court and off court. So that was a good moment for me. And and um, of course, uh, the men's you have to pick the the fact that uh, Alcaraz beat Djokovic at Wimbledon. I still can't believe that he beat him in a five setter at Wimbledon, where Novak is a seven time champion. I just did not see that one coming. Did Eric? Did you see that coming? Like I had, I had. Novak is such a lock. As much respect as I have for Carlos, I just did not see that happening. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I mean, especially even when when went to a fifth set. I mean, you had to had to favor Djokovic there, and especially after what happened at Roland Garros. So I just, and I mean, in some ways, Wimbledon is is Djokovic after or after Australia. I mean, Wimbledon in some ways is Djokovic's go to major so um it seemed everything was in his favor but that's why you just sort of that in terms of like alcaraz if we, if we talked about taking the next step i mean that's the way to do it right to win wimbledon in the way that he did so eric what did you think about the coco sabalenka final in, in flushing meadows Again, another another amazing final, uh, especially for Coco, and especially with coming in there um, as the as the favorite after the summer that she had, and kind of dealing with all that expectation, especially from the U.S. media and the fans, and just the way that she uh, kind of ach- achieved her achieved her destiny in some ways. It felt like that if she was going to win her first major, it would be the U.S. Open. Yeah. So, uh, uh, again, and you have to give Sabalenka credit, uh, going back to that semifinal that she played against Keys. I mean, she was basically out of that match and somehow got back in to get to the final. So, again, you have to give Sabalenka a lot of credit there for just uh, finding a way uh, into the final uh, there. So... Absolutely. Would you say that um, my, one of my questions is, uh, who do you think is going to emerge as Iga's biggest rival in 2024? I mean, we saw a lot of players kind of take some of the power back from Iga. Coco got some wins against her. Even JPEG, Jessica Pagula got yeah, some JPEG, wins against yeah. her. Uh, which player do you think can challenge Iga? In, and Rybakina, of course, was unbelievable against Iga, though Iga had some a little bit of an injury troubles in some of their matches. Uh, but but Rybakina really seems to have Iga's number. Do you, which of these players do you think will be the most difficult for Iga going forward? I think you got to say Rabakina just because of how she's handled, you know, has also different surfaces, not only Australia, but also Roe, you know, she's, yeah, I would say Indian you have Wells, to say Rabakina yeah. because she, Iga doesn't seem to pick up on her serve either as well. If you look at some of the score, like I know, I know she was, like you said, in Australia, she wasn't on it, but still it was four and four. I mean, she doesn't seem to be able to get on her serve. And, uh, you know, when Iga likes to sort of shade to the backhand corner to hit the forehand, if you do that with Rabakina, her backhand is so devastating. She can hit it down the line or pin you in the corner. She's very oppressive for Iga. So I, I think even though, you know, she gets overlooked a lot, I think right now, now today she is the she is the most the biggest threat to you. Yeah, Eric, you agree? I uh, I'm going to say yes, and I also because I still think Rabakina uh, is able. I don't want to say she's a, uh, anonymous anymore, but I don't think she she goes she gets the kind of scrutiny that some of the other top players still get. Um, I think that even though she totally deserves because she's she's such a tremendous player, but uh, I think 
there's in some ways she still can sort of fly under the radar a little bit if that makes sense even though the top players know she's dangerous and can serve anybody off the court i think that kind of goes into her favor a little bit uh yeah because she's so ice cold on court as well it's almost like nothing phases her which is hard to deal with as a player too it's almost like the chris everett effect she's just stone cold you don't know what's going on between her you can't you can't read anything, so um, that's what makes her so dangerous. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean Sabalenka in terms of game wise, she absolutely can challenge her. But I think just to pick up on what you just said, you know, with Sabalenka here and there, she can go up and down and lose concentration, three, four, five points. Whereas with Rabakina, you just don't know what she's thinking. I mean, you just don't know. You're looking at her, you just don't know what's going through her head. So that's a little bit. Uh, you know, it's got to be a little bit challenging for the opponent. It reminds me, if, if Sabalenka, you know, at the same time, she was almost in three major finals this year, almost won two majors, was up a set on Coco. I, I, when I was watching the Djokovic interview last night, when he talking about smashing the rackets, when he said, I experienced the emotion, just try to release it and let it go immediately and get, reset immediately. If she can learn to just do that a little bit better, and to her credit, she has. She has improved emotion she can just do that a little bit better minimize the hangover from the anger uh she's going to be there at the end i think yeah it'll be interesting to see how all the players ranked below Iga can do against her like has coco really made strides or was that just a temporary blip on a head-to-head that has been pretty lopsided and also, how are they how is coco going to respond defending the u.s open how is sabalanka going to defend she's never had to defend those kind of points before how are they going to react yeah. and then rubacana when she won wimbledon she didn't get the point she didn't get the bump but at the same time she didn't have to defend it yep Interesting. I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball, something that's that's on my list again today. And back to Yannick Sinner and Carlos Alcaraz. Richard, do you think Sinner could have a, actually have a better career than Alcaraz, not given what you've seen in these last couple seasons? Yeah, I think he could. But if you if you put a gun to my head, I would say Alcaraz. He's got two majors. He's got two of the biggest ones, and he just has such a presence on the big stage for big crowd, which Sinner had too. If you saw in turn when they were doing the Ole Ole. Center, it reminded me of the Delpo. And they, so he, he's not afraid either. Of them. But I just think Alcaraz has that, and he's just such a great, great shot maker. But, you know, long, Sinner has done well against him, and also long-term, yeah. you could make a case that Sinner is just a more disciplined player. And also, let's be honest, I mean, Sinner could have been a world-class skier. The guy's a phenomenal athlete. I mean, this guy is a really, really good athlete. And what really impresses me about him is on the stretch. They list him at 6'3". His arms are like a guy 6'7". If you saw Turin, some of the where they take him out wide on the serve, what he can do with the wide ball on the forehand, the control that he has, it's it's really, really impressive. Medvedev's good like that, but he takes he's closer to the baseline than Medvedev, so it's even more scary. So, yeah, I mean, I could see – I wouldn't argue with you if you told me – if you went with Sinner, but I'm – just Alcaraz, I've seen him in so many big spots. My heart is, is with him. I've just seen so many times. You got Carlitos long term then for for more. Yeah, I, I would, but like I said, I wouldn't really argue if you if you went the That's, other way. Anything's possible. How about you, Eric? What's your thoughts on that? I mean, similar to what Richard said, you'd, you'd have to go with Alcaraz. I mean, the only thing is, if unless injuries, which seem to have popped up now a little bit for Alcaraz, I don't know if that's. Uh, a conditioning thing or or what, but yeah. that would be the only kind of uh, factor that could potentially uh, limit what he he, he could do. Yeah. So uh, just because his game is so athletic, I mean, it's it's 
not I'm not comparing him to Nadal, but I'm just saying it's it's the kind of game that could potentially down the road uh, he could incur more injuries than see a, a center uh, yeah. would. Yeah, it's an in- interesting question because you think back at what, what if we were asking this question in say 2011 after Djokovic had that big year and was like starting to move up the Grand Slam title as you say maybe this guy has a chance to catch Nadal and Federer and everybody would have said nah there's no there's no like there's no way there's, and so it, you just you don't know because we didn't know about Djokovic in 2008 there's a lot of things we don't know so it'll be it'll be really interesting to watch it play out and I think the one wild card for me and the reason I asked the question is because the way that Sinner has played against Alcaraz head to head yeah you got to figure they're going to meet a lot and so that is going to be so fascinating to see them play big finals maybe even a slam final someday I mean how, how that rivalry shapes up how they face each other on different surfaces it's uh, we've got a lot to look forward to uh, I'll change subjects again I think I've hit all the topics I planned to hit but I wanted to talk about the state of the tours a little bit and maybe some of the controversy we've heard about the you know, this has been a strange season, especially dating back to the WTA finals. Probably the first year where we've really seen some of the top players spending a lot of time talking out against the WTA tour. It seems like there's a, it's not the greatest vibe going on inside the tour. And I, there's just a lot of negativity about the way the WTA tour is handling its business, what's going on with it in terms of finance and where it's headed in the future. Are we looking at a merger? I just wanted to see, you know, put my feelers out, starting with Eric. What are your thoughts on what's gone on with the WTA this year? Obviously, the play on the court has been incredible. The storylines are incredible. But there's a lot of issues that are going on with prize money, with late-night finishes, with players feeling like they're, like they're not getting the amount of respect they deserve from the tour itself, which I find interesting. And I don't know what the remedy is, but it, we're going to need to see something soon. I just wonder how you've digested all this and what your thoughts are about it. Well, I think it's just interesting that it's been 50 years since the WTA was created. And, of course, a lot of the reasons why the WTA was created was, of course, Billie Jean King and the players at the time wanted wanted more money, wanted more control over their, their, career, their careers and everything. And here we are 50 years later, and some of the same issues, similar issues are – back at the forefront and it was 1973 when the ATP men boycotted Wimbledon for their reasons because they wanted more control over the schedules and everything like that so it's just interesting that now here we are 50 years later and we're we're still talking about these um these issues and they're becoming more and more 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 about it's not just about what's happening on the court it's what's happening off the court and I think my, if I'm getting a prediction for next year, is that I think that the players, especially the big players, are if if these these situations continue like we saw at Cancun and like we see these extremely late night, early morning uh, matches, that the players will take a stand and will say we're not going to play unless something is done. And then it's going to be interesting to see how the the tours and those that run the tours respond. Because essentially it's the big name players that would have the power to essentially shut down a tournament. But then how would, say, the second tier players, no disrespect, how would they respond? Would they be in solidarity with the major players or would they say, well, we're going to play because we need the money? So I think that's going to actually actually going to come to some sort of 
fruition next year at some tournament. Um, and then, of course, there's the issues regarding uh, the involvement of Saudi Arabia and their yeah. influence and their money and how that's going to play into all of this as well. So I don't think that these issues that arose in 20 this year are going to go away next year. I think they're actually going to escalate unless there's some resolution all the way around. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And Richard, what are, what are some of your thoughts? I mean, Eric also mentioned Saudi Arabia. It feels like the winds of change are blowing across both tours. It feels like, according to that article I read by Matt Futterman in The Athletic, that the tours are looking at ways to kind of branch off and make a premier tour for the top players and kind of, you know, like widen the gap between the elite tournaments and maybe the 500, 250s. Like a lot of stuff could be happening in the next few years. Of course, the women are aiming to get equal prize money at the 1,500 level events by 2027. And, and for now, they're so far off. I don't know how they're going to arrange new media rights in time to get that done. But there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen, I guess, for people to feel good about the tennis landscape. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just so much. It's just so much going on that we could spend a whole week of shows talking about it. But I guess mm. just to hit on a few points, to me, when your whole tour, when your whole season – you're promoting and touting the year end as this is our crown jewel. This is where we show the world the best of the best in the best setting. And then you send them to a place where you're dealing with 20 plus mile an hour winds and rain. And it's out. I mean, it's just, you're, you just shoot yourself in the foot. I mean, you just totally betray your own brand. I don't, I don't get that at all. And I understand, you know, there's, uh, you know, money, obviously there's a lot of concerns and, but they had other options. I just don't understand why you would sort of sabotage your own brand and then piss off your own. And you know what, if I was a player, I'd be pissed off too, because you're out there at the end of a long year, you're grinding. And now, you know, you could twist an ankle, you could fall, you could blow your knee out, blow your shoulder. I mean, why, for what? Like you're not even getting respected. I mean, I know the money's on the table. That's always an incentive. The points are on the table, but Man, that is just a really, really bad look. And I, I've covered a lot of those year-end, including the last year in L.A. at Staples Center, and that was a similarly badly promoted event, but at least it was indoors. At least it was in L.A. Yeah, at least people get there, you know. And that's no disrespect to Mexico because they love tennis. I've been to Mexico many times. They love tennis. They, the fans are great. They're supportive. But, man, you just put them in a really, really bad spot. So I, I, the other thing is, like, why the hell couldn't they do a press conference and just try to talk it out, like make some kind of – to not even talk about it, like to pretend that all what we're seeing is not happening? I, I'm not with that, man. you got to really – you got to stand up and give some answers, at least to the players. If you're not going to do it to the media, at least to the players. And it sounded like they didn't know really what was going on. Sounds so like you're not happy with leadership. Yeah, that's really disappointing. And the other thing that really kind of gets to me is – Gaudenzi on the ATP, since he's come in, he's repeatedly publicly said the future for tennis is merging the two tours, packaging those rights, then the digital rights are much more valuable, then you can really press the sport forward, we'd be the only sport, major sport in the world, men and women playing together. Now that brings up a whole other sort of Pandora's box, which you guys were just talking about with the stream, you know, with the premier tour, and then you have the elites and then the people but I don't see why they wouldn't at least negotiate, talk about that. And it sounds like they're just not into doing that, which – and you're talking about, you know, closing the gap. on That's never going to happen the way, it, the way it's structured now unless you get Saudi money. Then it could happen like next year 
or unless you went back with China and somehow got that money. That's the only way it's going to happen. So I, I just, to me, it's really frustrating that they don't, that there doesn't seem to be a greater effort to find a synergy between the two tours and really make it special and really give the people what they want, give the players the money what they want, give the sport the prestige it deserves. Yeah. I know it's complicated. I know there's a lot of logistical contractual issues, but it just doesn't seem to be a thing for them. I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, it's dicey. You want to come back at me, Eric? Again, it's 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 what Richard said. It's like it it, it does seem that the the logic the logical pathway is to merge both tours. But again, the there's a lot of resistance. Of course, there, there's tons of uh, male players that are re- resistant to that, and they don't like the idea of equal prize money. So again, it's buy-in from not just those that run the tours, but the players and everything. And I, I don't know if that it's feasible or, or not, uh, even if it's the best solution, just because of as everything Richard pointed out. So, yeah, I, yeah I, and like I, and the negatives, obviously, is you hate to see somewhere like Newport, you know, where I go every, you know, for years and years to not have a turn. You see these smaller, tur- you'd hate to see Delray go. I mean, there's a where really where it's a, for fans that can't afford to go to the U.S. Open and pay those crazy prices, you hate to see those marginalized or diminished or even worse disappear. But, you know, I just think to do the same thing over and over and over again, we've all seen how this story ends and it doesn't end well, you know. So I don't know. It seems to me, why not try something new? Look what they did with Davis Cup. I don't agree with what they did, but at least they tried to do something, you know. Yeah, that's part of the fear, though, is that that they do. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah, you're right. They come you're in right. and they make boomerang. they make big changes, and and then it, it and then it boomerang. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's hard. I mean, we're try, we're trying to come to grips with Davis Cup. It it, it always works in the, when you get to the final, and you're always excited about it. It's just yeah, it's a lot of stuff happening. I don't, I think to myself as you guys are talking, why doesn't Billie Jean King just somehow take over the women's tour or like a company that is in her name that has her her ethos and. and I don't. It may, and that that I guess just takes me back to leadership. I don't know. I think it might be a little stale at the top right now, and it needs to change. And it needs to think maybe a little bit long term instead of short term money. It's a very tough situation, and just have yeah, to hope for the best. That's the problem. I think you just hit it on the head because, like Eric said, if the men, if you go to them and say, "Look, for the greater good of the game, we're going to combine the tours, and you guys are going to have to take a pay cut." Obviously, nobody's going to want to do that unless you're Djokovic or someone who's made a hundred million dollars, where you know you can afford to do that. But at the same time, you know, how else do you grow the game? Like, what else are you going to do? I don't, I don't understand why they why they wouldn't explore at least more combined events. And also, you know, when I was coming up, when I was growing up, a lot of those, the men's, the Masters events, Miami, those were all best of three. Now, that's not an issue anymore. Everything is best of three. Even Davis Cup is best of three, except for the Slam. So I don't, I don't think it's that, it, that, that that kind of thing should be, oh, it's always, always like, well, we work longer, we deserve more. You know, if you really want to see the game grow, maybe you got to suck it up. Well, it's easy for me to say it's not my money and I'm not the one taking a pay cut, but mm. yeah. you got to look bigger, bigger picture if you really want to grow yeah. the game. And at least financially, what Gaudenzi is saying is if you package those combined rights digitally, you're going to get money from that immediately. To, if that's what he's saying. I'm, I'm not a businessman. I don't know the details, but he's saying you're going to be able to infuse that money back into the game. The danger is, like Eric said, you hate to see those lower-level events marginalized or just disappear. That would be a killer for the sport. That would be really, really bad. It's like where I live and see movie theaters. 
Oh yeah, and you hate to see the the women maybe become a part of an entity that is joint, and maybe they don't have as much of a voice as the men. That's the other thing. I know, but how much voice do they have now? If they can't even even the year end, the way they're talking, like they didn't even they weren't consulted. Some I don't know. I yeah, mean, that was bad. You're right. But I mean, how much do they? What's the where's the direction now? Who's driving it? Yeah. Yeah, I just heard discussions. I was listening to uh, No Challenges remaining Ben Rothenberg's podcast, and you know they're talking about even the presence of the WTI and YouTube compared to what the ATP does and tennis TV and whatnot. You know, there's big differences on what on what's going, what's getting published, what's getting produced, what's getting pushed out, where they are in the public eye. I mean, there's a lot of great storylines. It's, it's not they're not far sure. behind, but they could do a little better job maximizing what they have. But that's funny, also money to pay people to do that yes. so i mean part of that is that's revenue but i think the, the bigger point is look they have a they're at a really exciting time right now if you look at all the young players and then you look at the returning players osaka kerbers Vitalino, all these people coming back there's going to be some great great tennis coming up there's a lot to be excited about but you got to kind of be organized and disciplined and have a plan yeah parting thoughts I'm going to break it down here because I think I'm pretty sure Richard's battery is going to, going to conk out in a few minutes. So what, what, sum it all up, 2023, Eric, in, in uh, 36 words or less. Uh, 20, uh, summing it up in 36 <laughs> words or less. Uh, you can Djokovic, have more. You can Djokovic, have more. Djokovic dominates. Uh, Alcaraz ascends uh, at Wimbledon. And despite all the issues of the women's tour, the players produced stellar tennis. We saw so many breakthroughs, uh, especially at the majors. That bodes well for uh, an exciting WTA season next year. Perfect. That's the silver lining is that everything you need to, to, to make the sport better, if it needs to be better, is there inside the WTA tour. Richard, 36 words or less. Uh, exciting season. Fantastic to see the... the um sort of cross-generation rivalries and also what i really liked was seeing the resurgence of players like um dimitrov coming back and i was i was in miami to see kvitova and kirstea both you know players or maybe a little bit older both coming back strong and also to just see people who broke out in their own way and were really grateful like like chris eubanks he did oh yeah see how Gratitude to people like that that really put a lot into her. Even a guy like Ketchmanovich, he had a really good Davis until, you know, that, that last double. He had a really good run in Davis because see guys like that or quarter the second half of the year. That was great to see. Yep. Uh, good, good point on Chris Eubanks. I mean, I had so many people talking to me about Chris Eubanks and loving what he was doing, you know, especially during Wimbledon. That was a lot of fun. I guess in my 36 words or less, I, I, I will take a, take a little turn at this. I'd like to see Owens Jabour come back over after her hardship and, and get, grab us a Grand Slam in 2024, and that would make 2024 even better than we think it is going to be. So to me, that's one of the things I'm hopeful about. One of the biggest heartbreakers of the season, one of the most endearing and wonderful players on the tour. Um, to see her rise to the to the pinnacle would be cool for next year and maybe a, a good a good sign for all of us that things are getting better in this crazy world of ours. But I guess we'll leave it there, my friends, and let's uh, come back to preview the Australian Open, and we'll continue this discussion. Maybe we should make this a little bit staple of our discussion, a little bit about the future of the game and what's going on with the tours and, and whatnot. So we'll keep that conversation warm and simmering, and we'll, we'll join forces again in early January when it's time to heat up for 2024. Thanks for coming on, Eric and Richard. My pleasure, and happy holidays to everyone. Yeah, thanks to you guys and thanks to our audience. Thanks for everybody who listens and visits the site. We really appreciate you guys all year.
Good stuff, you guys, and happy holidays to you all, and uh, we'll talk soon. This edition of the Lucky Let Cord podcast is a wrap. Special thanks to Eric Goodris and Richard Pagliaro for joining me. It was a pleasure to speak with them, and we'll look forward to doing it again in 2024, just before the Australian Open. If you guys want to follow us along on the web, we can do that at www.tennisnow.com. Also, hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash tennisnow. On Twitter, at tennis underscore now. We're also on Instagram. And, of course, we'd love it if you rate, review, subscribe to this podcast. It means a lot to us. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts. That's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. There's other things. You guys know how to find us. Just Google Lucky Let Cord Podcast. Voila, you'll find us, and we'll be together for 2024 and beyond. Thanks a lot for listening, and uh, happy holidays to everybody. We'll talk to you next year.